Our wave acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Talking Country Health Podcast, a series bringing together people from all different health backgrounds to provide their experiences, stories and insights about working in rural healthcare. Proudly brought to you by Rural Workforce Agency Victoria. I'm your host, Andrew Maher, and today we're talking with Dr. Angela Stratton, a rural generalist at Mount Beauty Medical Centre and a visiting medical officer at Alpine Health and Albury Wodonga Health. Angela is also a clinical lead for the Victorian Government's Rural Generalist Program, and we'll be hearing from Angela about the opportunities that have opened up to her in the world of health in rural Victoria. So, good morning, Angela. Where do we find you today? Uh, good morning, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I'm actually sitting in an office at Alpine Health today. As I um, as aware of many hats today, I'm being the statewide clinical lead uh, for the Victorian Rural Generalist Program. All right. So let's go back to the beginning. And what drew you initially to medicine? Well, I've always had a desire to help people. And uh, although it sounds a little bit cliche, for me, it definitely was. Mm-hmm. And, and when you couple that with an interest in science and particularly biology and physiology, it was a, a natural choice for me at the end of high school. Okay. And um, why rural practice in particular? What attracted you to that? Well, um, I was a rural kid, really. I grew up in, in Albury, Wodonga with a, a mm-hmm. short stint in Dubbo, and I never really felt comfortable in the city. So so being a rural um, in whatever I did was, was natural to me. I actually studied medicine at Newcastle Uni and was quite active in the Rural Health Club, which I would highly recommend to all students, not just those from a rural background. And I think that really showed me just how much I really da- loved living rural and what kind of work opportunities were available there. Good old Newcastle. So when you were studying up there, was there anything in particular that helped you prepare either up in Newey or anywhere preparing for a career in rural practice? Uh, well, yeah. So joining medical school, I think I was quite altruistic, as, as many you know high school leavers are. I was going to save the world one rural nah, community yeah. at a time. <laughs> and I, I did have the wonderful opportunity to do what's called a John Flynn Scholarship Scheme. I'm not, not sure you're aware of that program, mm. but that's where students get to go out to a, a country town and spend a couple of weeks each year just living and um, working in those towns. And I actually went out to remote WA with the Flying Doctors, oh. which was an incredible experience. And, Victor Charlie and really, Charlie. All right. Yes, yes. And although it was very remote and I realised that maybe that level of remoteness wasn't quite for me, I think it just opened my eyes up to the you know amazing skill set that those rural doctors have and what kind of options would be available to me as in a rural career. Pretty impressive. So you've moved from Newcastle all the way out to Outback WA. Now you find yourself in the high country of Victoria. Could you tell me a highlight of the career that has taken you across so much of our beautiful land? Oh, well, look, I mean, how how can you you pick just one? So Mm. I think as a rural doctor, you get to do just amazing things. So one of the things I recently did was present to our local interns on a career in rural generalism. And I actually titled my talk called The Things I Wouldn't Have Done If I Wasn't a Rural Generalist. And the double mm. negative was deliberate. But yeah. basically, I went through you know all the cool things I've done, such as you know delivering a baby in a blizzard, being a <laughs> medic at the, the Commonwealth Games, 
delivering, you know, meningococcal to uh, prophylaxis to 160 household contacts because that's how many people were living in this student dormitory accommodation and the Department of Health thought we were too far away for them to send their people at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So they got us to do it, being rural generalists. So, you know, it's in our skill set. So, you know, it's hard to pick just one and, and, you know, you never know what the day is going to bring in this job. How do you deliver a baby in a blizzard? Well, I think well, I'm a bit, bit of a philosophy that babies actually deliver themselves if you just uh-huh. create a safe environment and, you know, you just have to do what you can do with the skill set that you've got. Snow in particular must just bring a whole other level of challenge to your work, whether it be uh, traipsing through deep snow, contending with difficulties with access on the roads, and you work in the snowfields now. That must be pretty challenging. But what are some of the things that you've learned from working in that snowy environment? Mm, absolutely. So I work over winter in the Falls Creek Medical Centre up on the Victorian Alps, mm. um, which is about, for those that don't know, about two hours south of Aubrey-Wodonga. So working in the snowfields is absolutely awesome. It's not mm. what many people picture when they think of rural Australia. It's not a desert. It's not in the in the outback, but we are certainly remote and it does have that cha- challenges. And there's not too many places where you can do handover on a chairlift in the morning and oh. get a few runs in. But- <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, but look, what have I learned? And I think there's probably three main things that I have learned. And one of them is actually just how to prioritise. You know, the traditional triage systems, although helpful, don't really work in that niche environment. And you need to have a really deep understanding of what your capabilities are, you know, how far away retrieval will be, you know, and what else is happening, not just in the clinic, but on the mountain. And you know, example might be realising that you need to change the order in which you do something because the weather's too poor for air retrieval to come mm. and you've only sent your single ambulance off the mountain. So, so what are you going to do? So it's about, you know, problem solving and prioritising, um, which definitely is something that I've learnt. The other two things I probably think about is, so the importance of teamwork. So really up there, it, no matter how small your team is, which is pretty small for us, your role definitions become quite blurred. So you need to be able to work across a different scope. So, for example, we don't have nurses up there. So, all our doctors and students need to be able to set up IV lines, draw up drugs, or even get a bedpan for a patient. You need to be able to do all those things. You know, our receptionists become our scribes and our social workers and our runners. Mm. Um, And even my non-medical husband has helped with um, non-clinical tasks in the middle of the night when we've had emergencies. So, you need to have, you know, a fantastic workplace culture where, you know, everyone's opinion counts and you can feel confident on each other's skill sets and people are just willing to get in and have a go, whatever the job is that needs to be done. Fantastic. And I think that leads nicely into the last thing that I think you always learn in these environments is that you can't do better than your best, really. Sometimes the system is just stretched too far and, you know, you understand that it's not your fault. And as long as you've done your best within the resources you've had, you you can't do, you can't do more than that. But it's definitely, although it's a challenging job, it's a very rewarding job as well. I'll bet. And is there anything that you've learnt from the snow and ski field environment that has influenced your day-to-day practice? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think those teamwork and priority skills can be applied anywhere. And I'm definitely a lot more, I guess, adaptable and flexible. And I I know when I work in the emergency department at my regional centre at Aubrey-Wodonga, the FASEMs there are just quite, there's a few of us that work there, they get quite impressed by how we can just adapt and how quickly we can, you know, change our thinking to, to fit into a new system or whatever the um, is happening in the department. And they actually really enjoy having rural generalists work in there for those extra sort of skills that they bring. 
Great. You've just mentioned the uh, Rural Generalist Program. You're a clinical lead for that program. What is your vision for the Victorian Mm. Rural Generalist Program? Well, we're in an exciting time for rural generalism at the moment. Having rural generalism on the path to being recognised as a subspecialty of general practice has really provided rural GPs with the recognition that they deserve. The scope of practice you know, and skill set that these doctors have has for many years gone underappreciated. So to have both the federal and state governments now really recognise that this is a career skill set with a defined pathway and both of them have invested in having a national rural generalist program of which our program is the state version. So my vision for the program is really to have some clear pathways and structures in place that coordinate training and support for rural generalist trainees in Victoria. So right from medical school through to beyond fellowship, our program can support these trainees and just enable them to make sure they've got the right skill set that they need to be able to work in the communities, which are, you know, every community is different and doctors need different skills depending on where they're going to go. And we can help to ensure that the doctors are prepared for that. Brilliant. Going back to when you were uh, a younger doctor, what was the best piece of advice that you received that uh, might be helpful to other young doctors now? So the best piece of advice I've ever received actually came from my my practice manager. Um, So she says, you can do everything, Angela, but not all at once. (laughs) So Mm. I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to having too many balls in the air. And I think being a rural generalist, when we do have a broad scope, often we put our hands up for lots of different things. So I love to be busy and to try new things, yet, you know, being too busy makes all of us stress. So there's a fine line that I have to have. And once I said to my husband that I was aiming to free up some more time and he, he laughed at me and then he says, but every time you have free time, you just fill it up again. <laughs> so I realised that, you know, although I could say yes to things, I do have to make sure now that if I'm saying yes or putting a new ball in the air, I have to actually make sure I put one of them down. And that's actually just sustainable for making sure that I can continue to do what I do every day. And as you said before, you can't do better than your best, which is a, <laughs> That's right. a brilliant saying. But speaking of keeping balls in the air, you're not only doing all these amazing things in medicine, but you're also a mum of three. How do you uh, juggle the family life and rural medical practice with all of the challenges that it presents? So, as I mentioned, I have my husband and you said three kids. They're aged 14, 11 and 7. So, as ah. they get older, things do get a bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how, how do I juggle all of that? Well, look... I don't know how well I juggle it. Maybe you need to ask somebody else. But I think <laughs> my, my advice to um, people who want to start a family in medicine is really don't wait for the right time to have a family because I'm not sure the right time will ever come. You mm. know, there's, in, in medicine, and as I talked before, I, I love trying new things. There's always going to be something else that you want to do, another step on the training ladder, even after fellowship. And if you kind of wait for that time to come, it's not. So, you know, if you're otherwise ready, just go on and do it because you will be able to fit medicine in around you. And I think, you know, myself and many other parents have proven that. And then really, once you've got kids, get some help. You don't have to do it all on your own. Gathering your community around you and, you know, whether that's family or friends, I've actually uh, rarely lived near family in my adult life. So we actually heavily rely on a close knit of friends that are in a similar situation. And once again, that's actually the benefit of rural life. So when we lived in the city, we knew lots of people, but I wouldn't have called them close friends. And Mm -hmm. it actually really hit home one day when I was having my second child and I realized there wasn't a single person that I really felt comfortable with to call on if I, 
went into labour in the middle of the night. Mm. And I tell you what, since moving to the country, life's completely different. People are so genuine and friendly, you know, that true community that we have. And, you know, you can call on people for anything and we do the same for them. So nothing's too big. So, you know, once you've got kids, make sure you get help. And and I guess the final thing with all of that is, look, work-life balance, although it's not a myth, it doesn't just happen on its own. Mm. So, you know, if you've got a family, you do need to choose to make it happen. And, you know, there will always be another patient, another person who wants something from you. So if you really want work-life balance, you need to learn to say no and, and not feel guilty about it. Well, good advice. That would help yeah. reduce a little bit of burnout too, which is a topic I wanted to get to. Mm. It's a, uh, a very real topic among medical professionals, particularly in rural health. Have you got any other tips on how to avoid burnout? Yeah, Andrew, this is, it is a real, real issue. And I think in the, in the times that we're at at the moment, we're seeing this more and more. And I, I personally have been near burnout a few times in the past and, mm. and really have only had a better understanding of it and how to prevent it in the last few years. And and as I said before, I'm a person who tends to put my hand up for things, so mm-hmm. I do have to be really wary out. But although burnout has common factors, I think it is actually unique to everyone. And understanding your own early warning signs is actually really important. So for me, it's grumpiness and negativity. And so if I start to get really annoyed by little things, like someone's borrowed something from my room and forgot to put it back, you know, and I start to get grumpy and I think, oh, hang on, what's going on here? And that's actually realised that I'm overworked rather than anything else the other person's done. So really that then leads me to go, well, what do I need to do now? And learning to say no and setting boundaries is really crucial. So like many doctors, I used to believe that, you know, setting boundaries was selfish and I'd feel guilty if I said no. So I've realised actually, these are the basics of self-care and it's essential for all of us. So there's another quote that I quite like that's called, don't set yourself on fire to keep somebody else warm. And I Mm. see doctors doing this all the time. And it is hard to say no that first time. And it might be as simple as just telling your patient that you can't cover everything on their list today and they need to make another appointment. But once you do start to say no and put those boundaries in place and see that the world didn't fall apart, Mm -hmm. um, it does become a bit easier to do it again. (laughs) And then, of course, if you live in the Victorian high country, you can always just grit your teeth and hang on till the next winter and get some good downhill runs on the ski hills. Absolutely. Although nowadays in summer, it's all about mountain biking. So the Ah. mountain biking where we are is growing bigger and bigger. It's keeping us very busy. We used to have summers off, not anymore. So if you're not into skiing, come and visit us in the high country in summer and jump on a mountain bike and enjoy some of the trails for both families and those more experienced. Brilliant. Some good action on the water as well. Uh, absolutely. We've got a lovely river here. If you want to, you know, fish or float down the river and things like that, definitely will keep you uh, cool in summer if you want to escape the heat. Fantastic. Well, we have a great time up in the beautiful summer of the uh, the Victorian high country. And thanks so much for your time today, Dr. Angela Stratton. Thanks, Andrew. The R-Wave Specialist GP Locum Program supports doctors with rural medical experience to secure locum work in regional Victoria and establish connections with country practices. If you're interested in taking up locum work, visit the R-Wave website to find out how you can get involved. That's rwav.com.au. Thanks a lot for listening. The Talking Country Health Podcast is brought to you by the Rural Workforce Agency Victoria, connecting health professionals and communities in rural and regional Victoria. Visit www.rwav.com.au to learn more about our services. 
and to explore a career in country Victoria.